Welcome to Seemingly Ordinary. It's a podcast where I interview people who on the surface appear quite ordinary, but underneath the surface, they have amazing things going on. Emily Wabker is a mom of six, a teacher, and one of the most avid readers whom I know. Previously, I interviewed Emily about the World War II class she taught and about what it's like to raise six kids. But today, it's a great pleasure to discuss books with someone who reads this much. Hey, Emily. Hello. Well, so far, this week or month or year, you can pick the time frame. Just how much have you read? I'd say this year, probably at least a book a month, if not two. Hard to estimate. Hard to estimate. I'm usually reading three or four at a time. Okay. Okay. Gotcha. I've been known to do that too. Um, just kind of going back into childhood, why do you like books so much? Because I've taught for years and then I would ask students, what's your favorite book? And over half the people would say, I don't read books, That's which just, sad. I know. I just, I just thought, Hey, I'm ready to quit. I'm just going to go do something where I don't have to worry about whether or not people are reading. I was just so sad. But yeah, why do you love books so much? Gosh, I, it's the stories. You know, people talk all about how people are drawn to Bible stories too and how Jesus taught with stories and, and things like that. And that's how, you know, oral tradition, passing down stories, generations, you know. And I just think that you can go to a different place than your life without having to experience it. You know, you can experience trials and joys and different cultures and languages from your living room and you can learn about so many people and places. See, that's kind of how I feel. I feel like it's a door to the world and it's a door into other people's hearts and psyches and I can live in centuries and on continents that otherwise I just may never experience. And also too, I just think it's interesting. I've read enough evolutionary psychology to know that the evolutionary psychologists think that we are wired for stories and that stories stick. I mean, we can't remember instructions, one, two, three, four, follow these four easy steps, but we can remember stories. So I, I'm kind of a believer that we're wired for stories as well. Um, what types of books do you love? I feel like I like a variety. I think I lean towards certain categories, but I definitely like history. I like historical fiction. Um, if I know a lot about the topic, then I get really worried. Well, even if I don't know a lot, I have to go do the research to know what's real and what's not in historical fiction because I don't want to be led astray. Like, I just need to know what's the fiction and what's the history so that I can feel like an educated person who, you know, knows what's real and what's not, I guess. And not get suckered, maybe, or feel like you got suckered. Yeah, yeah, just to know what's real, I guess. Um, but I do, I do like historical fiction. I've read a lot of Holocaust memoirs, uh, especially from teaching the class, but, I mean, it is amazing how something's so devastating. There are so many stories out there, and, you know, the memoirs are true, obviously. But it's just fascinating to hear how people kept hope in those times that seem utterly hopeless and how they, cause they survived on hope, you know, and it was luck of the draw how they survived. And so those are fascinating, just, you know, fighting for their lives. Um, I mean, as a parent, I read a lot of parenting type books and personality type things. 
Uh, I love books about, like there's a book from years ago called Outliers. And it's oh, yeah, like, Malcolm Gladwell. Yeah, yeah, which I don't take everything he says, like, I don't know, take it with a grain of salt. But I did enjoy that book, um, just looking at trends and statistics. And um, the one I'm reading right now is called Atomic Habits. Oh, yes, I love that. Mm -hmm. And it's just, you know, showing people that, like, small changes can affect your life for good or for bad. And so making small habit changes. And so... It's fascinating to read the true stories of how... People did it. How they did it. Like the British cycling team. Such a fascinating oh, story. Oh, it's great. Every, everything. That guy's actually just a great, great storyteller. He's got all these great tips and suggestions for making your situation better, but just the stories. You can just get sucked into his stories so easily. I love that book. I've read that three times. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> I just meticulously outlined it, too. I went through with a ballpoint pen and wrote all over it. Oh, sure. Yeah, yeah. yeah I just love really that good. book. Love that book. Yeah. Yeah, I saw a recommendation from a friend, so I have it from the library. Okay, so you like historical books. You like parenting books. You like true stories. You like... Um, personality books like Myers-Briggs and things like that mm -hmm. and fiction. What type of fiction are you attracted to? Um, you know, quite a bit of fantasy, dystopia. I mean, I've read all the series, you know, Harry Potter and Hunger Games and Divergent, all those young adult right, right, right. fiction, you know, but and like Hunger Games, I just felt people could really think about the world they're in oh for sure you know and what the world could become for sure so i found those really fascinating just thought-provoking um what other fiction i would just just as a little interruption i'm sorry i would be against the person who dismisses these as just i don't know merely teen fiction I think that the reason they're so attractive is because they appeal to people of all age brackets because they have profound things to say. Mm -hmm. I'm going to make the, the worst and the loosest connection ever. Somebody asked the guys who did the Bugs Bunny cartoons that, hey, you guys made these cartoons in the 40s. Why are people still watching them 70 years later? And they said, I'll let you in on a little secret. Uh, we wrote half of them for adults. You know, the jokes were meant for adults. They said kids will pick up on half the jokes. The adults will pick up on the rest of the jokes. It was all good. That makes so much sense. It's like all the jokes in Disney movies or Shrek movies or whatever, you know, whatever they're aimed at kids, but they know adults are going to be taking them to see them. Oh, for sure. So they give them a little entertainment too. They also said that kids are smarter than a lot of people give them credit for. Mm -hmm. They don't have life experience, but they're intelligent. Mm -hmm. You know, but you're a mom of six. You could tell me, are kids smart? Yeah, absolutely. Okay, <laughs> yeah, yeah. It's uh, it's adults like me that I worry about. Oh gosh, so. well, you know, I'm guiding them <laughs> on the good path versus the bad. Right, right, right. Well, um, okay, so you gave me 20 really intriguing titles to discuss. And uh, I'm just going to briefly list them, and then we'll maybe jump into Gone with the Wind, if that's okay. Sure. Um, Gone, with, uh, Gone with the Wind. I am uh, Malala, uh, Left to Tell, Annie Holocaust Memoir, Lord of the Flies, Harry Potter, Hunger Games, Alexander Hamilton by Ron Chernown, uh, Canterbury Tales, Saxon Tales, um, The Princess Bride, Atomic Habits, The Temperament God Gave Me, Babywise, 
Basic Bible for Catholics, Catholic All Year, Unplanned, Skirtape Letters, My Sisters the Saints, and Anything by Jennifer Fulweiler. Um, let's just start with Gone with the Wind. Why do you like Gone with the Wind? Why do you think, maybe this is two separate questions, why do you think it is the second best-selling book of all time? I looked it up, and I have to tell you this, publishing records apparently are very sloppy and bad. So they, they don't even know if it sold 25 or 30 million copies. I mean, 5 million, that's kind of a big difference, you know, but they, but they don't know. But that's just because publishing records apparently are just not so good. Do you remember what year it was published? Well, like 1938, that probably also enters into the fact that, hey, how do you keep track for 82 years? Yeah. You know, sure. it's probably, I don't know, it's just jacked up. Either way, a lot. Yeah, 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 yeah. So, but it just, nothing has outsold it except for maybe the Bible. Well, certainly the Bible. Yeah. Yeah. I didn't have that on my list. That was kind of an assumed one. Maybe I shouldn't have. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> inferred that, but that's affected my life probably the most of all of those on that oh, list. Oh, yeah. Well, I mean, people used to say that if you're trapped on an island, you should just have the complete works of Shakespeare and the Bible. Oh, that good. those would be the two best things that any human being could possibly read. It'd be pretty good. And that's from a literary point of view. Yeah. Yeah. That would be good. So, okay, all that being said, um, why do you like Gone with the Wind so much? Well, I I like it now. I was introduced to it pretty young. I think my mom watched it with me when I was probably around 10 or so. And, I mean, I, I've always been drawn to history. So I think that was my initial, like, to see the Civil War, a time period nowhere near ours, you know, getting to see that depicted and have an idea in your head because you can learn about it in a textbook you can learn about it through a variety of books but also as a young child you're not reading a ton of civil war era oh for sure you know and so i think that was a very intriguing time period that i didn't know much about but was historical and you know she wrote some really great characters oh yeah and many not just one great character you know a plethora of great characters within this backdrop that was crazy time to live in so I think for me it was the historical backdrop, the great characters, you know, and watching them overcome incredible hardship. Yes. I think that's extremely well said. I, I mean, the book's got everything, plot, character, setting, themes, just all over the place. Uh, so, okay, so let's talk about some of these characters just a little bit. Just give me your impressions of Scarlett O'Hara. So she starts out, your first, well, my first impression, watching the movie at least, because I think that's what I picture in my head. I've read the book more than once, but I picture everything because that's, you know, what I see. Vivian Leigh. Exactly. Yeah. So yeah, her character is a spoiled brat. She grows up fairly wealthy, and she's kind of the belle of her area anyway in the South. And so because of her sheltered life, she hasn't experienced any kind of not drama really I guess not hardship maybe is the yeah word. no difficulties right she's been on a glide path right so the war is coming though and so it's really awesome to see her character growth over the the story because she you know has no difficulties and then she has to really come and face reality with okay there's a war people are actually going to start dying and then she sees that you know she sees people she loves dying and people she loves getting hurt because they're spouses are dying and then she has to fight for her life and you know shoot a gun and she does so many things that she probably would have never imagined early on before the war confront starvation yeah exactly 
And so it's awesome to see her fight tooth and nail for what she believes in, for what she loves to survive. Yeah, she's pretty hardcore. Mm-hmm. And she does, she does seem to... Like, initially, it was all about reputation and kind of her being the most popular, but then she kind of goes 180 during several points where she's doing things to survive, and she does stuff that other people wouldn't do, even in harder times. Mm. And she gains a very different reputation for various reasons throughout the whole story, but she's strong enough to be able to manage it and survive. And I was thinking about her as somebody who... You know, she falls in love with a couple different people, but she's also one of those people who's so strong that she doesn't need a partner, you know, and can't, not that everyone's made for sure for a partner or anything. But sure, sure. She seems like someone, she might want that companionship, she might not, but she is for sure strong enough to be able to handle whatever life throws her way by the end. Right. <laughs> At the beginning, uh, she's not ready for that, but by the end. By the end, for sure, she's overcome enough that she doesn't care as much about what people think, and she's able to stand on her own two feet and survive on her own. Which, for a woman in that time period, that's no easy feat. Well, let's let's uh, play true and false with this. True or false? Scarlett O'Hara always comes out on top. Oh, true, for the most part. So when the game was who can be the most popular, who can be the most charming, who can be the belle of the ball, she comes out on top. For sure. When the game is uh, who can shoot people that are getting in her way, you know, who can stave off uh, violence against her, who can avoid starvation, who can make money in a destitute economy, Scarlett comes out on top. She does. Okay. Okay. She's really intelligent, too. I should have said that. At the beginning, she seems really, she appears to be unintelligent, but she's also only showing the frivolous side. But it's really impressive to see because I think she comes out on top, you know, because she's astute and ruthless and capable. Right. So I think she just has this intelligence that she wouldn't have cared about that at the beginning. Right. And she needs it to survive. But she didn't need it. And I guess what I'm wondering is when she was frivolous and uh, just like a big ice cream, you know, whipped cream frothy cone or whatever at the beginning, is that just also another form of ruthlessness? Oh, for sure. Yeah. Like she was like the, it was that girl. Right. People love to hate her. Right. She was, she was going to land the top guy. Yes. Okay. Yeah, and she wasn't a super kind person either. No. No. I mean, if she saw a competitor coming... She was Regina George. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> okay. Um, Rhett Butler. Impressions on Rhett. So, he's kind of the bad boy. Uh, he has kind of a reputation when you first meet him. He's a stark contrast to Ashley Wilkes, who is supposed to be the debonair, handsome, good guy character. And... Rhett proves to also be intelligent and also going to do what it takes to survive mentality. Um, he kind of plays both sides of the war. Like, he's not picking a side. He's just choosing to make money and survive and come out, you know, on top enough at the end of the war. And so uh, that gives him a bad reputation in the South. And Scarlett hates him at first, but she also, you can kind of tell she 
there's some appeal because of his lifestyle or his manner or something like that. His devil may care attitude. Yeah, yeah. He has hilarious jokes. Oh, he's great. The fact that uh, he's willing to tease her and everybody else is walking on eggshells around her or every guy is desperate to please. And uh, he's just willing to, um, I don't know, just sort of like uh, rib her or needle her just a little bit. Right. It's probably, that's probably the appeal for her is because he's hard to get for her. You know? Gotcha. Because if she's the most popular, every guy falls at her feet. No, she doesn't get all of those guys or anything, but she could. And that's, it's easy for her. Uh-huh. Versus because he... He sees through her a little bit too. Oh, for sure. You know, and but not completely. And that's what's so intriguing yes. is that he sees through her three fourths of the way. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. He sees the the similarities that they have. Yeah. That they they're able to put on a front, but that they're not as good as they seem on the outside, or mm. however they want people to see them. But he also sees the intelligence. He sees how capable she is, and that's what draws him to her as well. I think. Because they see a lot in common with each other, but they also drive each other crazy. So yeah. Whole love, hate, you know, we yeah. in common, but drive each other crazy. You know, I, I'm just wondering if this is maybe where the relationship falls apart. I had a little technical difficulty at this point and had to switch to a different microphone. Back to the show. I feel like maybe part of the reason the relationship falls apart, I'm just guessing, is because... She's putting up kind of a front or a show. She's playing a character in a way. He's doing the same thing. They both got this, I don't know, devil-may-care attitude, or she's got this ruthless thing. But when it's just the two of them alone by themselves, and you have to be who you actually are, maybe they don't know who they actually are. I don't know. I'm just tossing that out there as an idea. That could be. I'm trying to remember more about that part. I remember when they lost their daughter. Mm that was a breaking point in their relationship, you know, cause it takes communication. So if you're not communicating well, and then you have a devastating thing happen, right? that's just, it's not going to for sure ruin the relationship, but it's going to be detrimental unless you can overcome it. So I remember that being a major part, but from the movie, what I remember is that there were moments that you could see that they both loved each other, but they weren't at the same time. So it was kind of timing was off. Like mm. they could not get on the same page. Because you really are rooting for them because you want them both to be happy. And when she finally realizes, like, I've been chasing the wrong guys the whole time. And he's been there all along. And I've been married to him but didn't exactly love him. But I thought he was good enough. You know, it's like, oh, you couldn't figure it out sooner. Come on. What a mess. What a mess. Well, and I guess the course of true love never did run smooth. Right? Right. That's Shakespeare. Um, (laughs) So Shakespeare says it best, maybe. Okay, why do you think Scarlett loves Ashley Wilkes? You know, I always grew up wondering. (laughs) Because, I mean, I think it was just like that was the thing to do. You know, before the war, it was like if she's the most eligible bachelorette Uh and he's the most eligible bachelor, it's kind of like the football player and the cheerleader are meant to be together, and that's what she thought. Like, that's the way I always read it was – He's not a good fit for you. Why can't you see that? But yet you think he's the one for you. And yeah. you guys would never work or be a good fit. Like, even as a kid, I feel like I could see that. Why Why can't they be a good fit? Oh, they were just too different. He was a pushover. You know, he... But she couldn't push him over. Oh, sure she could. I mean, she's just like, hey, Ashley, I want to be with you. And he's like, 
yes, that would be great, but no, but no. And he never does. Yeah. So, I mean, you can't push him over. He's he's like, you're awesome, no way. Yeah, but he was already married to Melanie. I mean, so he's got a pretty good spine of steel when it comes to saying no, is what I'm trying to say. That is impressive. Everything else is a big spineless jellyfish, like you're saying. Yeah, that is true. I know. He was very, he was a very confusing character to me. But to me. Maybe that's why she likes him. It's the zigzag. What the heck's he going to do next? It could be. I have no idea what he's going to do next. I don't know. Is it the zigzag? I don't know. I Is it the fact that he's telling her no and you, and you always want what you can't have? That could be. Maybe that was it. Okay. Because he, she knew he was with Melanie. Maybe the author, Margaret Mitchell, is just jacking with everybody. <laughs> that could be. <laughs> She's just like, huh, you guys are going to spend forever trying to figure this out. And here we are still talking about <laughs> yeah, it. Yeah, 82 years sure. later. Okay. So I, I think we might have already covered why Scarlet and Rhett can't have a happy, lasting romance. Um, anything else you want to add on that? Or do you feel like we've got that? Well, see, I think they could. Like, okay, so the movie ends with him leaving. I know. And she says she's With the best line. And, exactly. Yes. <laughs> exactly. One of the best cinematic in, in, lines. Yes. For sure. World history. For sure. But she, her last part, you know, is she's going to go fight to get him back, right? Yeah. After he leaves. And so she's finally realized it and she can't convince him to stay, but she's going to try again tomorrow, you know? So it, they, at least in the movie, it leaves it open-ended. Yeah. So it doesn't mean it can't. And I know she wrote, was it her that wrote the sequel? No, or somebody, somebody else, else did. did. I read the sequel. It was not as good. And she doesn't end up with him either. What, what a job for another author to pick up Gone with the Wind and mm-hmm. have to write the sequel to that. I mean, it you, was You'd good, have to have an ego. Was it good? It was not Gone with the Wind. <laughs> it okay. Was, it was decent. Of course I read it because... It's, you have to. I had to. I could right. not. But It probably sold like 10 million copies just on the name Gone know. with the Wind. Yeah. Unless word of mouth killed it. I mean, if you thought it was good, then I bet it sold a bazillion copies. Uh, I don't know if good's the right word. Decent is what I remember. Like, it was worth trying, I guess. Okay. Um, She goes back to Ireland, I think, in a big part of it. Okay. Where her family's from. But I don't remember much. It wasn't as memorable as this one, obviously. Okay. But it wasn't a movie, too. And visual really helps people remember. Yeah. So, although maybe it is. Gosh, I don't know. Um, but I don't know. I feel like the open-endedness of it doesn't mean they can't. Like, we've seen them struggle, but plenty of people have difficult but worth it marriages. You yes. know, no one claims marriage is going to be easy. Some people will have much easier marriages than others. But I do think I always rooted for them because I just, I saw how much potential they had. And you could see when they loved yeah. each other. You could see it. And the and chemistry of Vivian Lee and, um, Clark Gable was so good, too. Oh, yeah, yeah. For sure. Like, they played it well. But even reading the book, too, you're like, oh, you want this to work for them. And you don't see it fully line up, but it has glimpses of happiness. And so it's like, okay, now that she finally took her the whole book to get there, and it's a thousand pages or whatever, she she finally figured it out. And knowing her, she's going to fight and get him back. And they're going to make it Okay, because don't she's... Don't you think? Because she's ruthless. Yeah. Right. And stubborn. Right. But... And he's stubborn too. Yeah. But I feel like she might be more so. Yeah, she might be. But I, yeah, we don't know. We don't know. We don't. It's a tough. Honestly, I think that's part of its eternal appeal. For sure. Because this genius author basically leaves it open ended. Yep. Which means that you come up with your ending. 
I come up with my ending. Uh, everybody else comes up with their ending. And so, therefore, Gone with the Wind has 30 million endings from all of the different people who read the book. And it's got 2 billion endings from all of the people who saw the movie. Mm-hmm. It's true. And if you're in a different mood, it has a different ending the next time you <laughs> read it. That's true. <laughs> She's a genius. This lady's a genius. It's true, though. Margaret the open Mitchell. ending yeah. is, is key. Yeah. yeah, for sure. Well, because a question begs to be answered. They say people think in questions. Like, what do I need to do now? You know, or what mm -hmm. should I have for lunch? Mm -hmm. You know, what's the meaning of life? Just all those type of things, you know? And then it just, we beg to have an answer, you mm -hmm. know? So I think it does that. Why do you think this is maybe the most pop? well, it is the most popular movie of all time. I looked it up. And uh, they had a list of inflation-adjusted, what the mm -hmm. top 10 movies are. Do you want to know what the top 10 movies I are? I do, I do. So Gone with the Wind sold more tickets than all these other movies. Avatar came in second, Titanic third, Star Wars fourth, Avengers Endgame fifth, Sound of Music sixth, E.T. seven, The Ten Commandments eight, Dr. Zhivago nine, and Star Wars The Force Awakens was ten. Um, and then censors banned Gone with the Wind in 2020, and it immediately shot to number one on Amazon the minute they banned it. And uh, the book, as I think I may have mentioned earlier, sold maybe 25 to 30 million copies, um, second to the Bible. So why, why do you think that is? I mean, what is the appeal with Gone with the Wind above everything else? I mean, I think it's like you said before. I think... It's the fact that it has everything. It has adventure. It has fear, you know, or, you know, a war time situation. You have characters starving. You have hardship. You have romance. You have all of it. Got everything. It has everything. It's got the ultimate plot. It's got war and it's got love. It's got what they used to call the boy plot and it's got the girl plot. It's got extreme characters. Mm -hmm. uh, it doesn't have little itsy bitsy, teeny weeny personalities it's got big bold personalities mm -hmm. um even the characters that are kind of pushovers like ashley wilkes there's just something big about it that you know well why can't scarlet get him so even the pushovers are big personalities uh themes it's just got these incredible themes i i love the historical piece too and and the fact that it's so old makes it a historical piece because, okay, yeah, it's about the Civil War, but it was written, what, 70 years after the Civil War? Civil War is in the 1860s. This comes out in the 1930s. So you're already kind of looking at it from a lens of 70 years away. But then we're looking at it as maybe people in the 30s might have seen aspects of the Civil War, and especially the Southern perspective. Like, we're going to glorify the South. We're going to valorize the South. Although there is one telling moment in there where they kind of call the people in the South idiots, which I think is really interesting. It's like right before they go to war, all the guys are toasting and celebrating, and then Clark Gable's character comes in, Red Butler, and says, you people are fools. Don't you realize we're going to get decimated? We're going to get absolutely decimated. They've got twice the money, twice the guns, twice the men. they got twice the everything. And then the Southerners are all like, honor, it's all about honor, you know. So it just it has so many of these neat little moments. Mm -hmm. So Well, and speaking of, you know, it came out in the 30s. 
it's really fascinating when you read about the backstory about mm. the Academy Awards that it okay. won, and okay. then the fact that Hattie McDowell couldn't even yes. like sit in the main room yes. when she won the Academy Award, yes. the biggest award in cinema. Yes, and then the fact that they wouldn't let her come and sit in the main ballroom where it's the awards crazy. were being done. First African American person to win an Academy Award. Mm-hmm. Yeah, mm-hmm. and just. Bad timing. Bad 1930s, time. we still had a lot of issues in our country. Not that they've gone away, but right, they've right, changed right. a bit. Yeah, yeah. But, yeah. So, yeah, just a great story. What else about Gone with the Wind? Anything, or should we move on? We can move on. Okay. Um, just let's do quick hits, and then we'll go into detail on a few other things later. Why should people read I Am Malala? Malala. So I'm not even sure I've finished this book, but the gist of it is it's a young girl in her teens and it's so recent. She was shot in the head for being a girl getting an education. Did she live? She did. She and wrote this book. She lives today. She speaks. Okay. She's in her 20s now. Okay. So like she this was, is how recent this is. And I, I haven't read it either. I read the back cover. She was shot by the Taliban in Afghanistan. Is that correct? I thought it was... Pakistan? Okay. I mean, they've got a very similar situation with parts of Pakistan. Yeah, I thought it was Pakistan or Kazakhstan, but don't quote me on that. But general area, yes. But the idea that that part of the world looks down upon and does not like women getting an education. And so she lived to tell this tale and to fight for that and to fight for women. And it's just, it's awesome to see a young girl sharing that story and fighting excuse me, fighting for that right. It's very powerful, very powerful. There's um, one that's from Saudi Arabia called Princess Sultan, and then Princess Sultana's daughter. I think there's two of them. And I read that a long time ago. And that was about a girl who left Saudi Arabia, even though she was not supposed to. And then she was supposed to go back, and there was just no way she was going to go back. Uh, just because of the repression that she had to put up with mm-hmm. there. So I, mm-hmm. I recommend that. Mm-hmm. Um, Left to Tell. Why should people read Left to Tell? So this is written by Immaculate Ilobagiza, and she's a survivor of the Rwandan genocide in 1994. So also very recent. People that people have heard about the Holocaust, but people don't usually know about modern day genocides that have happened since the Holocaust. And there have been several, which is ridiculous. Mm -hmm. And so she was hidden in a bathroom for the, the 90, the full three months of the Rwandan genocide. She was the, um, tribe that was being hunted down with machetes and attacked and killed. Her whole family was killed except for her brother who was not in the country when it happened. And so that story is about that journey and and her struggle and then her uh, redemption with her faith and with her relationship with Mary and the rosary um, and her journey of that in the bathroom. And then her kind of sequel to that is called Led by Faith. And I actually like that one even better. Oh, wow. Because it talks about, okay, I just survived all my friends killing all my other friends because they all grew up together. Right. It really right. wasn't a big deal. Yeah, Rwanda has two tribes and, two main pe- ones. and people were okay, two main ones. And and things were, I don't know, maybe fine, maybe with some underlying tension. And then just things exploded into just this tribal warfare and then ultimately a genocide where hundreds of thousands of people died in the most grisly ways possible. I mean, people being 
you know, hacked to death with hatchets. Just ridiculous. People just being absolutely dehumanized. Yeah, it's amazing because when I taught the Holocaust class, we did a lot of comparing and contrasting to the Holocaust, you know, as that is our ground zero. And this one just did not have the buildup or the world war backdrop. Right. Know? And the fact that it just, it appears like it comes out of nowhere, even though there were tribal tensions for years and like decades and almost centuries. That's right. But things were still doing pretty well. So it does really everything I've read seem like it kind of comes out of nowhere. It's so fast how fast they kill that many people, much faster than the Holocaust. And the fact that it was as gruesome because the Holocaust had some variations of gruesome, That's but, right. but in terms of the gas chambers, you only had a few Nazis seeing the hundreds that were killed by gas and it wasn't a bloody death. That's right. So it just didn't affect as many people, but these people that are, you know, point blank range with a machete is a very different thing. And they talk about how the people running this genocide just had tons of drugs and tons of alcohol to help them pull this off. Help them do it. There's no way. Which similar things happened early on in the uh, Nazi Holocaust Mm -hmm. against the Jews, where they would have to get the SS soldiers drunk, you know, in order to basically shoot people in the back of the head and then start being packed their corpses into ditches. This is really pretty gory, but I mean, that's what happened. Um, that's why they went to that whole factory model of murder because they couldn't have their soldiers. And these are horrible Nazi soldiers, but even they got PTSD. Mm-hmm. They couldn't do it. They mm-hmm. just couldn't keep doing it. And so then they realized, well, gosh, A, we want to speed this thing up. B, we can't have all of our soldiers be incapacitated with PTSD. So it's just kind of amazing. I, in Left to Tell, there's talk radio show hosts in Rwanda going on the radio telling people that the the tribe we don't like, they're not human, they're cockroaches. Mm-hmm. And what do you do with a cockroach? You kill it. Right, and then they would say people's names and where they're located and say, go hunt them down right now, they're at this address. And, you know, people they grew up with. So, anyway, her second one, Led by Faith, talks about, okay, it's over, mm. but how do you consider an entire half of the country as perpetrators right how do you how do you how do you come back from that as a country mm-hmm. and as an individual too she talks about both and you know how how can she forgive these people that she knew and the journey of her struggles to forgive the people around to be even near them right you know? and then to you know, she eventually gets out of the country she works for the un and then she gets to the u.s but i mean She's still there for quite a while after the genocide. And so it is fascinating listening to her journey about forgiveness and about moving forward and justice too, because, you know, justice, they had tons of people um, from the perpetrating tribe in jails, but they were full and they, there's no way they could put them all on trial. There were too many. So it was very messy, but it's so powerful. And I, I heard her speak in person. And I think she may have signed a book for me. And she was just, this was the thing that just absolutely floored me. But then I got to thinking about it afterward. And I, and I thought, if I were ever in a situation 1,000 that bad, I would want to be just like her. Mm-hmm. And here's why. When I met her, she was friendly. She was funny. Sometimes she was lighthearted and effervescent and life is a light as a feather 
And I mean, here, most of her family had been killed in the most gruesome way. And like you said, she was able to forgive people. But she was a realist. She wasn't living in fantasy land. She wasn't forgiving people because she was, I don't know, delusional or high or something. I mean, she was she was a realist. And, and she, she, I mean, she's made a career basically out of explaining to people what happened and then the aftermath and then how to forgive. And, and I just thought it would be natural for people to be hateful and bitter and resentful and want revenge and spend the rest of their life doing that and plotting that. That would make a lot of sense. Except, do I want to spend the next 30, 40 years of my life hateful and bitter and seeking revenge? Do I want to be consumed with... Now, I mean, when I put it this way, it seems very logical. No, no, of course I want to be happy. But then how do you get there? And that's why I just, I just can't even believe this woman. I just respect her so much. I'm just in awe of her, absolutely in awe of her. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Well, and it makes you wonder too, I don't know if she has PTSD from, you know, living through all of that. I'm sure, like, I would think she'd have to go to some kind of counseling to continue to move past all those demons. Maybe that is part of her story. Right. Maybe that's ongoing because how do you um, find the counselor who's like, yeah, you know, genocide. I've been trained for that. I can help you with genocide. I've got a PhD. It was really bad. Yes. Yeah. Right. Yeah. It's true. I just like, uh, yeah, it's the worst trauma you can possibly think of. So, and, and yet she's cheerful and optimistic and she had the whole crowd laughing. I mean, there were a thousand people and she was cracking certain jokes and she had the whole crowd laughing mm-hmm. in a different life. She could have been a comedian. <laughs> so, mm-hmm. so, okay. So there's that. And then you said any Holocaust memoir. Mm-hmm. Yes. I prefer true stories. There are, there's a handful of course of fictional Holocaust stories. I just do not prefer them. We have enough, we have had enough survivors and um, memoirs written based on their stories or diaries that have survived the ghettos. So to me, I don't want to read any that are made up fiction about, yeah. about that time period. But those are always fascinating. It's just one of the most horrific things in history. And But these people give hope and they... they try to help us understand because it has happened again, you know, so... Right. But we have to learn from history to try and prevent it. Right, right. I mean, I could list, you know, a dozen places. Stalin's gulags, uh, Mao's fields, uh, Cambodian killing fields, Rwandan holocaust, uh, in Yugoslavia, Tito's slaughterhouse, uh, you know, things in Iraq. I mean, I think Saddam killed something like three million people. Uh, So, I mean, the, the list is very, very long. So I guess the true stories that that somehow I guess I guess the theme I'm picking up is we're seeing the worst of humanity and yet we're seeing maybe the best of humanity because hope comes out someplace. Mm-hmm. Well, and you know I always I tell my kids this too. You know, there's bad things in the world, but God can bring good out of those things. Yes, He can teach us so much. He doesn't want those bad things to be right, happening. Right, of right, right. He doesn't allow. I mean, He allows them. We have free will. Right. Other people have free will. Yes. Unfortunately, I guess Hitler had free will. Stalin had free will. So with their free will, they inflict misery. But then that gives other people, I guess that's when we see other people 
maybe becoming heroes mm -hmm. or heroines. Mm -hmm. So, okay, that's very powerful. Um, Harry Potter. Uh, so good. I was very anti-Harry Potter for a while when they were new, but my senior year English teacher, we read a book every quarter, and the first quarter she said, this is the only quarter you'll get to choose a book. Mm. And me being obnoxious, I was just like, I'm going to just read Harry Potter because it'll be so quick and easy. Uh -huh. but, why, but at the time, I was like, oh, why are people reading, all, why are people older than me and my age reading these children's books, basically? I just couldn't believe it. And I read the first one, and I was hooked. So she's doing something right. But I, I like that in the end, what mattered the most and what saved everyone was love. Yeah. Yeah. And you feel it all the way through the whole series. Mm -hmm. Harry's got love starting on page one. Mm -hmm. And uh, a lot of the other characters do too. Mm -hmm. There's just, uh, just a lot of love just emanating from all kinds of characters all the way through the whole book. It's very, I mean, there's a lot of sympathetic characters in Harry Potter. There is. And it's really become just a cultural phenomenon. Oh, for sure. You know, it's become so big and it's a community. And I started listening to this podcast called Potterless. <laughs> and it's really funny. I've only listened to a few, but it's this grown man who he started this podcast because he's, he's like, I'm a grown man. I've never read any of them, never watched mm. any of them. So I'm going to read them and then react on this podcast. Oh, wow. And it's really fun. And he's had like a hundred plus episodes because he would do like a few chapters, you know, and then react and then a few... And so he went through all the books and all the movies, and he's finally to a very Potter musical, which is hilarious. Oh, my gosh. Um, but he talks a lot about the community of people who love Harry Potter and yeah. them being all accepting of all peoples and just a community of love. And I think that's really a, always a good thing. Yeah. Yeah. They're fun. They're very fun. Mm -hmm. um, I think we're going to go into depth on the Hunger Games later, so maybe... Well, actually, no, let's talk about the Hunger Games right now a little bit. What attracts you to the Hunger Games? Because in a way, in, in certain respects, it's the anti-Harry Potter series. Oh, for sure. Yeah, you're putting kids in an arena to kill each other. Right. I remember yeah. reading what they were about, because I think I saw it in like a K-State magazine, and they were recommending the freshmen to read it before right. they came. Because they said, you know, if you ever go to law school, you're going to wish you had read The Hunger Games so that you could really understand before oh you get there. <laughs> sure. Yeah, and I, I thought, okay, I've heard of this book, and then I read what it was about, and I was like, wait, what? Okay, let's try this out. But you read it, and you realize how deep it is and how much it makes you think about people in authority and yes. how much power they have. You know, and I, I'm, I don't like politics but it's something you cannot avoid right right well i i think when people think of politics like when they think of say office politics like if they say oh yeah i work at such and such a school and there's a lot of office politics or i work for this company and there's a lot of office politics i think what they mean by that is things aren't fair like you're not getting promoted on the basis of meritocracy you're getting promoted on the basis of sleaze and chicanery and lying and cheating and backstabbing. I think that's when people say politics, I think that's what they mean. Mm -hmm. It'd mm -hmm. be great if they said, you know, when I think of politics, I think of honest people voting and then deciding their differences on the basis of voting and then people living with the vote. Wouldn't that be great? But I don't think that's what people... And everyone who gets voted in is thinking of everyone's well-being. And I sure hope that they have term limits. Because if they do, then I can stop doing this crap politics job. And I can get back to, like, a better job 
subglyce cells. You know, I could take my family out of this environment and I'm here to serve, but nobody wants to serve for 20 years. Let's get real. And you know, I want to serve for like two years or four years or six years and I want to be done. I mean, that would be politics, but I guess the Hunger Games, yeah, there's a lot of politics in it. Yeah, it just, you know, it's good to question authority. For sure. And you have to really think about how, if you need to take further action, what that looks like. You know, and when you need to fight, when you need to stand back. And it, yeah, it really challenges you to just think about how things are and how they could be. Oh, yeah. Yeah. And just, I guess the politics angle is if you're the authority figure and then if you decided that the best way to run your society is to sacrifice other people's lives because you think that's either for the best interest of your particular group or you think that's for the best interest for everybody overall. Yeah, I mean, you're just moving people around like pieces on a chessboard. It's just kind of ugly, really. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. You know, and I, I guess it fits in with your love of books that put people in these dire situations. Yeah, it's interesting because I it it's so hard this day and age when if you disagree with somebody, it's far worse than it used to be. There's no tolerance anymore. We've redefined tolerance, right? Because everyone's like, oh, you're not intolerant when it's actually just, we disagree. And can we talk about it respectfully? But that doesn't ever happen. And so I think that's, what's hard is because you see people in power. And when you read the beginning of the book and you see the layout of the setting and you're like, how did it get to that point? Yes. You know, because we talked about it with the Holocaust too, you know, the whole, boiling pot you throw a, a frog in and yes and they would jump out you know versus gradually raising the temperature and it's like that's how hitler did it right it took it took some time there were a couple other things in place but it was a gradual thing and so you know in hunger games i'm assuming with president snow it was kind of this gradual taking away of rights gradual shaping the way he wanted it to and it's so hard when people have different beliefs and and it's okay for people to have different beliefs, but then when you're taking away the rights of others, then how can we how can we live together if it's so drastically different than my beliefs and it's infringing on on people's rights and their lives? How can we live in peace? Like that can't happen. Right. But it's hard to convince people they're wrong. Yeah. You know? Well, and, especially if they've got all the power and all the guns. And if you're right. snow, you also have all the propaganda. Right. That's but a, he also thinks he's right, too. Like, he, he clearly, he's not going to he do it if he doesn't believe in what he's doing. Right. Right. Or he believes in his group so much. And at a certain point, they just decide, you know, these, these questions of uh, murder and theft, they're just not as important as keeping my group in the top position. So maybe it's a hierarchy of moral values so to speak i guess it's the ultimate in tribalism like my group the capital above the other people completely i don't know yeah, i don't what know what you, motivates him entirely yeah what are you willing to sacrifice in order to keep your power yeah willing to sacrifice other people right and it's just hard it's hard for me to read too because i don't desire i think everyone probably desires power in some capacity but i can't relate to him at all of wanting to be in power over people so much that I mean he had to have been threatened or felt threatened by pretty much everyone around him because yes. he was so powerful but he was also doing this despicable thing and maybe he thought it was despicable to some point or thought other people thought that 
But, I mean, he had so many measures in place that if anyone defied him, he'd kill him, you know? That's and right. So That's right. It's just hard to imagine how he believes that way, how he got into power that way. Well, it blows my mind. I can't relate. It's the opposite of what we're supposed to have in the United States. And I, I guess I'll just focus in on the First Amendment. Like, you just briefly talked about how it needs to be okay for people to disagree with other people. Right. Well, I, I've sort of concluded that the First Amendment is this really idealistic thing that we have in the United States, and it makes the United States work, and it makes the United States beautiful when people adhere to it. But I'm not sure it's natural. I guess it would be like a person who always eats right and exercises. That might be an ideal, but it's not natural. Or it might be a situation where people are always compassionate to their family members, but that's probably not family members fight. It's not natural. And all you have to do is teach high school and hear one kid say, shut up to another kid. And then you realize, hey, the First Amendment is not enshrined in everybody's heart. Some people really do want other people to shut up. Mm -hmm. And what a tragedy this is for the human race, because then it just leads to this epic level propaganda. Just one theme in that, in that book that I just thought was great was just the constant propaganda analysis that it was doing, that the capital had control of all the media, and then they were very slick and very well produced. But it, it's really kind of easy to have propaganda when the other side isn't allowed to talk. So then I, I think about what the Nazis did with Joseph Goebbels or what the Soviets did with Pravda. They had very, very slick propaganda, and then the other side was not allowed to respond. Mm-hmm. And that's that's what Snow had. And the book covered that. And I just thought that was brilliant. Just brilliant. Well, and it's so hard when it just seems impossible to fight back. Right. So then they just go on with their life in the trying not to cause trouble or cause a rift because they don't want to risk their family. So you can see how this fear would just have people fall in line. That's right. Which is what the Nazis did too, is just That's right. providing this mentality that you don't have an escape. And we will take everything yeah. you love. Yeah. So fall in line. Because that's another thing. In the Nazis and with the Soviets, uh, there was no escape from politics. I, it just completely captured the whole culture. You couldn't have sports. You couldn't have movies. You couldn't have knitting, for crying out loud. You couldn't have anything that was, I mean, hey, you're supposed to be sketching a Soviet flag or a Nazi flag right now. I mean, just absolutely everything is politics all the time you can't escape from it in a dictatorship mm-hmm. so mm-hmm. so yeah just a brilliant brilliant series okay so um i guess we're gonna round out our blood and gore section with lord of the flies what attracted you with lord of the flies i don't know if it was attracted as much as it just stuck with me i remember reading it in grade school and i i just remember i remember kids turning on each other you know it was like a political arena with kids and it it I didn't like the book but I thought it was fairly profound I guess yeah you know it stuck with me enough to remember it years and years later yeah 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 early hunger games so to speak it really was you know what else is early hunger games is the lottery by Shirley Jackson which is a short story that's the one where once a year they stone somebody to death so that they have a better corn crop gosh it's pretty pretty intense i don't think i read that one okay well enough (laughs) maybe enough on the blood and gore uh how about alexander hamilton by ron tierno 
So I've read most of that, but I have become a huge fan of the musical. And of course, like I said, some anything historical, I'm going to do the research and figure out what's real and what's not. But I've read enough to find out that Lin-Manuel Miranda, so he picked up this book on vacation, <laughs> light reading, 800 pages. On, I know. On Alexander Hamilton. It's a brick. It is. But he, he was inspired to write a hip-hop musical about it, which has also become a completely huge historical cultural phenomenon. And so I, I wanted to know what was real and he wanted it to be very historically accurate. And he really does keep most of it really good. And the things he changes, most of it wasn't a big deal, still tells the story well. And it's fascinating. I was drawn to it because of the musical, but also because the more I learned, the more America overlooked him and it was partially because of the men who did not like him at his, like, other founding fathers. Mm. They just didn't allow his legacy to continue. And his wife fought for 50 years to preserve his writings, to preserve his legacy. Because he did play a huge role. Oh, for sure. In the, the man's on the $10 bill for a reason. Right, but he was almost taken off of it if it wasn't for the musical. <laughs> yeah. You know, because it was like America, when you hear Founding Fathers, you, everyone will say George Washington and Adams and Jefferson and Franklin, but like... They leave out Hamilton. They do. And if they they mention him, they don't know much about him. And yeah. I was the exact same way. Now I feel like I know a lot more. Yeah. But it it's really sad because... You would, I mean, I know the winners write history. Right. But at the same time, you would think the founding fathers, they were all very intelligent men. You would think they would see how much he added. Right. But right, maybe right, right. that's, they were too in the thick of it. Yeah. You know, maybe if they lived a hundred years and they could look back. And, if they could look back. And I don't know enough about any of them to know. Maybe because he died so young, maybe some of the other founding fathers did well, Wash Washington loved him. Oh, and, well, yeah. They were but like Washington died early compared to the other founders. Right. And they were close, but the other ones weren't so much. And everybody else was in the other political party. I mean, right. Hamilton was a Federalist, and then the Federalists died out and got replaced by the Democrats, basically. So, yeah, he was on the losing side of certain arguments, mm -hmm. you know, mm -hmm. after after we created political parties. Mm -hmm. So, which it sounded like he helped to do that. Yeah, kind of kind of because well, yeah, Washington said, "Hey, let's not have political parties. Political parties are bad." So, um, so let's just ignore George Washington, why don't we? So then right within his administration, the first two political parties got formed. I love their names. There were the Federalists and the Anti-Federalists. Just I, know. I mean, how's <laughs> what they had a hard time compromising. I wonder why, with two names like that. Mm -hmm. You know, so. You would hope, though, that having opposing viewpoints, even with good intentions, you know, because you look at, well, this is coming from the musical, but Hamilton and Jefferson did not get along. Right. And, but you would think, though, looking back, both of them wanted the good of the country. Yes. They just had differing viewpoints, and they were different enough that they really did not get along. But a lot of that was personality, too. They yes. still did want what was best for the country. And that's what's too bad about even today's politics is supposedly people in different parties are wanting the good of the entire country. Right. It doesn't appear that way a lot of times. No. But you would hope that everyone would just try to fight for the good, even if they yeah. lost. Like, okay. Because yeah. I would, if I was running, I'd say, if I lost, how can I still help you? Right. How can I still help make our country great? Because we can't serve only half of us. Right. 
Wouldn't that be wonderful? I wish. Yeah. <laughs> well, maybe we'll get over this horrible era, and in five years, everything will just be golden for a while. Um, Canterbury Tales. Um, why do you love the Canterbury Tales? By Chaucer. I love the Canterbury Tales. I remember reading them senior year English, and I remember, I think we did some acting out of, of various tales, or we did some really fun activities, and... You know, there's been a lot of retelling of those stories. You know, A Knight's Tale is a popular movie yeah. from our generation anyway. And I That's don't kind remember. kind of an action-adventure type of a thing, right? Uh-huh. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And it's okay. set in the actual time. It's not like a modern retelling. Um, but I've always been fascinated. I've never wanted to live in that time period. Right. It seems very gross and dirty to me. Yeah. But I like the idea of chivalry and of knighthood and... Um, you know, fighting for what you believe in and, and loyalty to a king. Hopefully it's a good king. Um, but I've always loved that time period. And so hearing tales of all these very colorful characters was very fun. Right. And I mean, I love the fact that in A Knight's Tale, the movie, they have Chaucer in there. Paul Bettany plays Chaucer. Oh, that's great. I haven't so seen good. it. Oh, he's so funny in it. He's great. Well, Paul Bettany's good in anything he's in, but he plays Chaucer in A Knight's Tale in this story just observing it and then at the end he's like i'm gonna write all this down or something you know it's, <laughs> it's a cheesy romantic you know yeah. whatever but it's still good and I, I i don't remember all the details i remember some of the bigger stories and i just remember being captivated by these very colorful characters some being grotesque some being romantic yeah a variety let, let me tell you what i just love about it is is uh there were supposed to be 120 stories. I think he wound up with about 26 or something before mm-hmm. he died. So there's that whole Margaret Mitchell, God with the Wind, you know, like, okay, so like a whole bunch of these aren't done. So therefore, anything could happen. There's that. But then, character-wise, you've got like the sincere story with the Knight's Tale. But then you've got like the dirty comedy with the Miller's Tale. But then you've got like the one that's just way out there, the Wife of Bath. You know, you just have such a wide variety of things going on in it. It's just, it's the garbage pizza of of stories. It's got one of everything, basically. Well, and it's great because it just gives you kind of a glimpse of that time period because he's also covering, like you said, just a variety of characters of different class levels, both genders. You know, he, he covers the gamut. So you can actually get a decent picture. Right. Even though... You can't, you know, stereotype each character of, like, every mother was like this, but still. Yeah, it's so good. And it just, um, also, too, like, a character might be telling a joke and might be making fun of themselves, but you also can kind of tell they're also kind of making fun of the people listening to the joke or they're making fun of the audience. And on top of that, they're making fun of themselves twice over. So it's just, there's layers to it Mm -hmm, as mm -hmm. well. Um, Saxon Tales. I don't know the Saxon Tales. What is that? So I'm just now getting into that. There's, of course, a show on Netflix called um, The Last Kingdom. Mm. So that inspired diving into this a little bit. But from what I can tell so far is St. Bede, back in the, I don't remember what year or what century he lived in, sometime between 400 and 1000 AD. I don't remember. Right. But he wrote down... I guess kind of the histories, because he was British, and he was writing the history of the people there, okay. of his tribes. And so they're true stories, and we can read them today. And there's a modern author who has kind of taken those and made a fictitious story. Hmm. But a lot of the characters are actually real characters. So 
at the beginning of this version, this fictionalized historical fiction version, you have um, a man named Alfred who later becomes King Alfred the Great, who's now a saint. And so, again, like I said, real characters, but giving them personality more than we know for sure. But we yeah. have some historical writings to give context and then add some other colorful characters. And so this author, Bernard Cromwell, I think is his name, his 13th book of this series comes out this November and each of the series or seasons on Netflix, there's four seasons. Each one is approximately two books. Okay. So it's, it's awesome. It's these, this Christian Saxons against these heathen Danes mm. and they all kind of want to just take over this very small Island of England <laughs> and they have their different areas and their beliefs in each other and dislike of each other. And so it's all about, power and money and who's taking over when and back and forth and it's really good wow wow that sounds great i will have to check it out okay and then you had the greatest adventure comedy romance of all time the princess bride absolutely <laughs> i think we can do 10 podcasts on the princess bride let's go i bet some people have um okay so why the princess bride Oh, gosh. I grew up on that movie. It's fantastic. I love it. I think it's probably a lot like Gone with the Wind where it does have everything. That's right. But I also love that it's satirical. I mean, they're trying to make fun of, like, your average fairy tale or your average knight's tale or something like that. You know, cause it's it is... sincere and sarcastic simultaneously. I How mean, does somebody pull that off? Right. I feel like that's hard to come by. Yeah. It's so good. Oh, it's so good. Well, and I read the book later on. Like I had seen, I had the whole movie memorized before I even read the book. So it's kind of hard to read the book when you can picture the whole movie oh, for and sure. say every line. For sure. So I mostly remember the movie, but the book was very, very similar. I'm going to, I'm going to recommend you read the book again because I, I read the book, I think twice or three times. Uh, and then the movie came along and then I saw the movie and then I thought, you know, it's written by the same guy, mm -hmm. William Goldman. Mm -hmm. Then I thought, this movie's okay. It's not as good as the book. They never are. <laughs> well, and then since then, since seeing the movie again, I'm, I'm, I'm going to raise my opinion of the movie. I mean, the movie is very fantastic. Mm -hmm. The book is very fantastic. It's by the same guy. who's like a super famous novelist plus screenwriter. Mm -hmm. This guy's had an amazing career, William Goldman. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I I think it's a lot like you said about Gone with the Wind, about having just everything. Yeah. You know, there's romance, there's sword fighting, there's a king who's evil and wants to plot and cause war right. so he can take over. And, and he's a bully, but underneath it all, he's a coward. Absolutely, absolutely. Yeah, you have a lot of your stereotypical characters right that's kind of the point right and, um, oh and they got the true love you know like oh you know between um buttercup and wesley you've got true love and yet they bicker all the way through the whole thing and then of course uh when they encountered the old couple that i think they're like 102 years old each they've been married you know for 80 years, and they bicker the whole time, too. So, I mean, just these contrasts. Like, okay, so apparently true love bickers 24-7. <laughs> See, and you don't get that in the movie. Not really. I don't know, because he'll, he'll say these little, well, she'll be like, what do you know, far boy, and all that. And then she'll, he'll be like, as you wish. And then he's, like, falling off of a cliff. And then, right. she's, then she feels bad because she treated him poorly, et right, cetera. Right. You know? I do feel like it's more subtle, though. 
Okay, yeah, it's more subtle. You know, because at the beginning, she doesn't treat him very well, you know, but then once she realizes she loves him, then it's very different, and then she thought he was lost, you know. So, like, I never got the impression it was... It wasn't quite as obvious to me that it was trying to juxtapose Yeah, maybe I shouldn't say bicker. Maybe I should say tease or needle or rib or just whatever, however you can tone down bicker. But you're right, though. The fact that he's, like, saying as you wish, as he's rolling down a cliff, though, it's true. Which (laughs) Which is like, hey, I love you, so I'll do whatever you want, as you wish. But it's also sarcastic. I'm rolling down the hill, and it's kind of your fault. Right. And this doesn't feel good. <laughs> yeah. So it's it's everything all at once. Mm-hmm. That's, I just love The Princess Bride. Yeah. So yeah, if people haven't seen it or read it, then just drop what you're doing and go do that. I yes. would say. I even used the Battle of Wits scene for an audition my senior year of high school. <laughs> How weird is that? It was hilarious. Well, and just even the dumb names he has for things that are very fun. Like uh, they... They go to a cave and there's these horrible rats and they're called the rodents of unusual size. Right, right. Because <laughs> so they're huge. <laughs> right. is I don't think they exist. <laughs> oh, they have an acronym. R-U-S uh-huh, <laughs> That's uh-huh. hilarious. I forgot about that. Okay, uh, a book. The Temperament God Gave Me. Mm-hmm. Why do you like this book? So it's just explaining this idea that there, not that there are four types of people per se, but there are four temperaments that everybody has bits and pieces of. And ideally, if you're trying to get rid of vice and grow in virtue, that you're going to be kind of equally disposed to all four of these temperaments. Mm. And So the perfectly balanced person is all four temperaments? Is that the idea? Yes. Perfectly balanced. The ideal man or woman. More or less. Got it. Okay. That's the way it. I read it. I believe they even say, like, Jesus would have been, like... All four. All four evenly balanced. Gotcha. You know. Because, you know, there's pros and cons to each one. Oh, yeah, And, yeah, yeah. You know, everybody has a um, primary okay. temperament. Yeah. Some people can have their primary and secondary be very close, which is the case for me. But I love finding out more about other people and how they're wired and how they work. And as a mom, especially too, it's very helpful because they're not all exactly like me. Oh, for sure. And so the more I can learn about people and it's helped in my friendships over the years, it's Mm. been amazing just knowing these things and knowing myself well enough to know, Oh, well I do tend to do that. I should stop (laughs) things like that. Well, and, and for people who may not be familiar with temperament theory, but, but perhaps you are, there's just a wide variety of personality tests that are out there. And this one splits people into choleric, sanguine, melancholic, and phlegmatic. And a choleric is kind of like a go getter, take charge personality, organized, wants to get things done type A sanguine. It's just more of kind of like a happy go lucky party animal type person and uh, believe it or not you could combine those two so then maybe that's your happy leader perhaps uh and then there's melancholic which means maybe kind of a deeply thoughtful person and then there's phlegmatic which could you remind me what is phlegmatic sure so these will be really laid back loyal can be lazy Uh uh-huh um they they'll be more introspective but they'll definitely be people pleasers. Got it. They won't think for themselves. They'll just go with whatever people want to do to not it. cause um, a discord. Mm-hmm. Yeah, they would mm-hmm. rather go along and get along. Mm-hmm. Harmony. Ver- yeah, harmony. Mm-hmm. Yeah, versus confrontation. Uh-huh. And everybody's a mix. Mm-hmm. Like, but you might be like eighty percent choleric and 
you know, 20% everything else, for example. Mm -hmm. So you could be pretty lopsided. But on the other hand, I guess the perfect person is evenly balanced on everything, right? Mm -hmm. If they're perfect, <laughs> which would be nobody. Jesus would be the yeah. only one. Jesus and yeah. Mary. Okay, so then that's just good because you can learn about yourself and others. Uh, Baby-wise, you mentioned that as a good book to read. Yes, this this is parenting philosophies, so this would be opinion. Okay. Um, because there's so much out there, but it was right. something that worked well with our family. Um, it just has, it, they have a series of books, so there's like baby-wise, toddler-wise, child-wise, as their kids are getting older. Okay. And the baby-wise. 28-year-old who won't leave the house-wise. <laughs> yes. How do you get them out? Man-child. <laughs> right, exactly. Man-child-wise. Um, Failure to launch with exactly. Matthew McConaughey. Exactly. That movie's so weird, but yes. That's a great movie. I love that movie. It's pretty funny. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But okay, so baby-wise, uh, what's, what's like the guiding philosophy? Is it, I don't know, be stern with your kids, be lenient with your kids? So the main reason that we liked it was mainly for newborns, for like a, a schedule of sorts, oh, okay. for eating and sleeping. Got it. So I've referred to their books as the kids have gotten older, but it was mainly for that newborn baby. And they kind of fall in the middle of, on one end you'll see attachment parenting where you kind of just, and also child-led where you're just going with whatever the child seems mm. to need and want. Child-directed or whatever. Yes, child-directed. Okay. And then on the other side, just a very strict parent-directed, okay. um, say, schedule. And so this one just falls in kind of in the middle oh, and it okay. was just a much more calm way to form a schedule because you know children need schedules and you really only need to let the baby dictate things for a few days you can mm. actually get them on a schedule very quickly you can't you can't well I guess you would know uh-huh <laughs> and so I just I liked it because it was in the middle so it they recommend I don't remember the name that they call it but they basically recommend like yes you as the parent are creating the schedule, they're joining your family. So the okay. baby is not dictating your whole life. They should right. join your family. And usually for people like as a, a newborn for a couple months is going to, you know, put a lot of pressure oh, and for make sure. you tired. Look, but, they, they're not following orders. They don't right. speak English just yet. Exactly. So, but they're also saying you still have a life to do and the baby is joining your life. And so they're just recommending that you create a, flexible schedule so you're still creating it and it's the order that you do things so it's like eat and then sleep not sleep and then eat or something but um i'm a i'm a big believer in flexible schedules i i yeah. think uh without a schedule a person is listless goalless and probably doomed yep. without a schedule I, I think a schedule creates freedom i think a rigid schedule well, I mean, we already discussed Hitler and Stalin. Mm -hmm. I, I just mm -hmm. don't want to live under, you know, the rigid schedule. Right. Yeah, and it's it's more than a routine. It is a routine, but, I mean, they do recommend, like, if you're having this many feedings, you do need to wake the child up to stay on schedule. You start first thing in the day, but, you know, you can be flexible half an hour-ish on either side. And but, the kid kind of likes it. Mm -hmm. And yeah. it works really, and it worked for all of our kids, to get on this schedule that fit into our life. Six out of six. That's pretty yeah, impressive. For the most part, yeah. Well, I mean, there's going to be hiccups. Right, yeah. Right. You know, and they have growth spurts and stuff too, but I mean, that's what we use to more or less train and feed our kids on those early days, so. Yeah, patterning, as some doctors call it, I uh -huh. guess. Schedule, patterning, mm -hmm. okay? Yep. Sounds very wise, baby wise. <laughs> very needed. Yeah. <laughs> 
Okay, and then you said basic Bible for Catholics. Uh, Bible basics for Catholics, yeah. Bible basics. It's by John Bergsma, who is a professor at Franciscan, I believe. I think he's at Franciscan. Okay. And I used this book when I was teaching Salvation History. Mm. And, I mean, I could speak about tons of Catholic books I've read over the years, but this was one I loved because it's so simple and so he's talking about Old Testament covenants, mm. and he focuses on the main ones. Okay. And in his book, he makes little stick figure drawings as like a visual to remember the covenants. Oh, and those are probably very funny. They are, and it's great because it sticks with you, you know, and you yeah. can picture, and he puts all the symbolic things that you need to remember for each covenant, you know, so he covers creation and Adam and Noah and Moses, and but you can see you know, the progression all the way to Jesus. And so I just, I thought it was well done how simple he made it and then added goofy drawings just to be funny, but also to give that visual. So it was just really good. That's cool. That's cool. Um, Catholic all year. So I found this woman, she lives in LA and I found her years ago at the beginning of my motherhood journey. And as a loving my faith Catholic and as a theology teacher teaching seniors, as soon as I had a kid or even was pregnant with my first, I was like, okay, how do I share the faith with them? And my husband's like, well, the baby's not born yet, so let's back up a step. But it took me a long time to be patient and wait for the kids to be old enough. But I also believe that we can surround our kids by beautiful things That's from right. day one. Yeah. So it's not that we're not catechizing, but coming from 18-year-olds where we could have these deep conversations and read the catechism, it was hard for me to dial it back to, okay, how do I catechize a toddler? Right, right, right. You know, and so they I They can't found, walk necessarily. Well, I guess if they're toddling, they could probably walk. Yeah. But yeah, so it was... It was hard for me to back way up. I was I did not know where to start or how to begin teaching the faith to these young children. But I wanted to so badly, but I also just wanted them to be older. And so I found this woman. She had a blog at the time. She still does. And now she has 10 kids. Oh, my gosh. And she continues to blog. She has a lot of products out there. And so basically her blog, she started just giving liturgical living ideas. Oh, okay. And just throughout the year, whatever time of year it was, she's like, for this feast day, we do this. And like, she does a ton of, if this saint is from Spain, we'll have this Spanish traditional feast. And so she just does very easy, quick things, sometimes crafts, sometimes a lot of times food, games, things like that. But she, last year or the year before, compiled it all into this book. Cool. And so it was fun for me to see because most of the stuff in the book we've done or I've seen because it was a compilation of all her blog posts that I've been reading for like five or six Forever. years yeah. and trying out with our family. Um, but she's been one of the best and earliest resources that I had to share the faith with our family. That's great. So. Wow. That's a really cool idea. Mm -hmm. Then you said Anything by Jennifer Fulweiler. That sounds crazy, but she only has three books. Okay. Not only. I don't have any books, but... okay. Um, yeah, so she, the first book of hers I read was she was a very strong atheist, and her first book is her conversion story to Catholicism. Wow, that's got to be good. I love conversion stories, especially because you're most likely going to see it from a very intelligent person because they're the ones seeking out the truth. They spend a lot of time thinking and questioning and searching and right. looking. And they have the capabilities to see through a lot of things because they have this intelligence, which is great. And so I just love people smarter than me. I'm like, okay, I don't know if I would be able, like, I would come to the truth eventually. I think everyone does come to the truth eventually. But if I hadn't been born a Catholic, if I hadn't 
right. know, been formed by so many great people. You know, this person who was not exposed to any kind of faith at all was a, an extreme atheist. At some point in her life, something changed and she fought it for a long time. Interesting. And then, and then sought out the truth. And her husband, same thing. He grew up kind of non-denominational Christian, kind of, maybe in name only. He kind okay. of believed, you know, okay. not really, not practicing, but believed, okay. sort of. I gotcha. But they both converted, and they're extremely faithful Catholics now. Wow. With six kids and live their faith. And so I love that her first book was her conversion story, and then her next book was about being a mom but still pursuing your passions, Okay, which hit home for me. And she also has six kids and also has some personality traits in common with me. So I had my mom and a friend be like, she really reminds me you of you. You should write her a letter. <laughs> I know. She she actually came to Kansas City recently, this year, because no, she's look, been I, touring. I, I'm going to really tell you, seriously, write her a letter, and here's why I'm going to say this. Uh, my favorite author of all time was Tom Wolfe, the man who wrote Bonfire of the Vanities. And Tom Wolfe is hilarious. And uh, Tom Wolfe was considered by many people to be the greatest writer of his generation. He wrote what a lot of people thought was the best book of the entire 1960s, The Electric Kool-Aid Acid Test. He was a journalist, and he thought the biggest story in the 70s is the astronauts. And he thought somebody should write a book about this. So he wrote the right stuff. And the entire time he was writing it, he was thinking, somebody's going to beat me to this. I am such a loser. Somebody's going to beat me to this. Nobody beat him to it. He won the National Book Award. During the 80s, he thought, I'm going to try fiction. And he spent seven years writing Bonfire of the Vanities. And then it was just this mega bestseller selling millions of copies, still in print today, selling tens of thousands of copies every year. An amazing book. Then there were other fiction books. I, the man just conquered the world. Well, I wrote him a letter sometime in the 90s. And he wrote me back. And I treasured that little thing forever. I can't, because he was also an artist. And so he drew funny little designs and calligraphy. And I'm thinking, Tom, how do you have time? But, but he was very prolific, wonderful, hilarious, brilliant stylist. And then he passed away at the age of 88. And that I just realized there's probably not going to be any more Tom Wolf books. Because unless people go in his archives, which apparently he's got an extensive archive, uh, I just don't know if we're going to see too much out of the archives. So I, I'm just saying do it while you can. She's mm -hmm. probably young and healthy and vigorous and all that. But if you wait till you're 90, then she's going to be an old lady at that point. <laughs> so I'd say do it now. Fair enough. Fair enough. That's, so that's my advice. <laughs> Write your heroes now before it's too late. Sounds good. Yeah. So... Okay, anything else on Jennifer Powila? Other than she could be your sister, your twin sister? <laughs> I don't think so. Okay, uh, Unplanned. Yes, so that's the Abby Johnson story. She ran, you know, was a big part of Planned Parenthood and eventually converted to Catholicism and left Planned Parenthood and now fights for life. And it was a very intriguing story, a very relevant topic, and very recent. Yes, so, and a true story. And a true story. So I haven't actually seen the movie yet, even though it's pretty new. Yeah, I just haven't gotten around to it. But i I liked the I liked the book. I thought she was very candid and honest about her struggles with um, her journey because she had two abortions. 
as part of her story. And so she explained, you know, how tough they were and how mentally tough it was on her and emotionally. And, and yet, you know, in her mind necessary at the time, you know, and so it was interesting to kind of get all sorts of perspectives from this one person, yes. you know, to try and understand why people get abortions because there are people that don't want them and get them, you know, because of their life circumstances. And so to see that a little bit with her story and then to see this conversion, um, complete 180 in her belief system, it was fascinating. I read that book and just was riveted the whole time and just had a hard time putting it down if I had something else that I needed to do. Mm-hmm. And the movie, parts of that were very, very tough to watch, uh, but also, too, just quite the draw, mm-hmm. quite the draw. So I recommend, recommend Unplanned. Mm-hmm. Screw Tape Letters. Yes, I have not read a lot of C.S. Lewis, even though I know he's awesome. I have a lot of books. They're just, you know, on the list. I know. But this was one I did read, oh gosh, I don't know, in college maybe or shortly after, but it really stuck with me because of how poignant it was. And, you know, decades and decades later, how relevant it was to our life. And so basically it's a letter from a very seasoned demon to yes. his nephew. Right, who's who is, a beginner. Right, who's yeah. a brand new baby demon. Right. And so he's giving him advice as to how to be effective in basically lacing evil into humanity. And, you know, like the basic, basic thing is, you know, you can't give them this obvious, like, go murder someone ideas. You have to really break into, like, their marriage and make them question the sacrament. You know, and it's, it's like, it's showing how... Little things. Right. It's showing how the devil works yeah. in our lives about twisting the truth. It's right. just like propaganda, right? Right, like, right, right. You take the truth, you twist it so it's believable enough. That's And right. you can convince yourself that it's fine. Yeah. And unless you have a strong foundation it's very easy to fall into these traps. And so I just found it so fascinating to read a book about humanity from the perspective of a demon. Yeah, like it's basically how to corrupt others, mm-hmm. you know, mm-hmm. for, I don't know, fun and profit or whatever, but or fun and power, I should say. That's basically the premise. Uh, just how to work on people's pride or their ego uh, and then just use that as uh, the foot in the door, and then pretty soon you're in their living room and they can't get you out. And it's scary. Yeah. Because you read it and you're like, I can relate to right. some or many parts of this book, and you're and you're just, holy cow, I've got work right. to do. Right. Yeah, you you're know? like, oh, I've done that. I've done that. Oh, right. yeah. Because yeah. you can think you're a good person, but, you know, your temptations are not usually these great obvious things. Well, I avoided that temptation today. Right. It almost knocked me upside the head. Right. You know, it's the so much more subtle things, and it's like, that's why we need this relationship with prayer, with God, and because we cannot do it alone, and we have to fight because yeah, it's happening. Yeah, because, because it, it's one little thing at a time. Like, okay, Nobody would probably, well, very few people would want to kill somebody else, but uh, in certain situations, gosh, it would sure be fun to tell off that other person, even though it would be a heartless thing to do. Um, but it's certain, not that bad. Yeah, it's not that bad. And then, you know, it just escalates. Things mm-hmm. just escalate. And pretty soon we're in a spiritual Rwanda, I mm-hmm. guess. Mm-hmm. So it's very powerful. Uh, let's see. My Sisters the Saints. Yes. So that's a modern day memoir. Colleen Carroll Campbell. She's, um, 
gosh, is she the one who used to be like a speechwriter? Speech she was a yes. speechwriter for one of the presidents. Yeah, so she, very intelligent, powerful woman, and she struggled with infertility, and she writes this novel about her story dealing with her profession, with her marriage, and with her infertility struggles, and the saints that she befriends along the way, learns about their lives and how they walk with her. And I love, I love the title of it, and I love the premise of it, because I've, I love studying the saints, but I see them as, as heroes of people I want yes. to emulate. But the fact that she shows you how to make it more personal and how to really make these people your friend, that's something that, I mean, I've always been like a head person needing to move to heart. So for me, it's like, these are people that are meant to walk this life mm. with us and have a relationship with us. And that's something that it's really cool to see in her book. Yeah, that's powerful. Well, and, and for people who are not Catholic, let me just mention that the saints are heroes. They are, and there's one for everybody. There's a saint who's got a PhD, but then there's also saints who are illiterate peasants. There are men, there are women, there are old people, there are young people. There are lawyers who became saints. There are people who were tortured and politically oppressed who became saints. There's just one of every kind. There's people who struggled with infertility. There's people who were longing to get married and, and just didn't get the chance to get married. There were people who wanted to make a difference and then passed away without seemingly to make a difference in their lifetime. I mean, there's just basically one of everybody. And, and if you think that we should have people that we should look up to, the way that some people might look up to, I don't know, athletes or rock stars or world historical figures like Winston Churchill or Harriet Tubman. That's what a saint can do for you. And there's one of each. And they just went through the most, some of them just went through the most horrible circumstances. So many of them, it's the story of triumph over adversity. Am, am I, what else would you add? I would just add, these are people that we believe are with God in heaven. Hmm. They've achieved the ultimate goal, which is unity with God. We believe they're in heaven. So we can pray to them to advocate for us. You know, we don't worship them. We don't pray to them in worship. We pray to them asking just as we would ask a friend to pray for us. To intercede. That's the word I want to Yeah. They're to intercede. Catholic heroes and yes, heroines. Absolutely. Okay. Okay. That's beautiful. Um, let's see. There's maybe one other book that you mentioned, Unbroken. Mm. And I, I should have put that in the historical section earlier. I apologize. Oh, I added Unbroken. it late. <laughs> <laughs> so that is the story. What's his name? Louis Zamperini. Yeah, that's it. Uh, true story, World War II. He was an Olympic runner. Yes, with Jesse Owens, I believe, in the 36th Berlin. In 36 in Berlin, yes. Yeah, yes. which is so amazing. That they even had those Olympics. Oh, yes. The Nazi Olympics, those whatever, but that's a whole other story. Uh, but yes, he, I have not seen the movie. I don't know if you have. Oh, it's good. Is it? It's I've good. I've been avoiding it actually. Oh, okay. Because I really liked the move, the book and I didn't want to ruin it in case the movie wasn't very good. But yeah, he survives in the Pacific. He at first is on a raft for, yeah. I don't even know how many days. It's right. a miracle that he survived. Right. And then he's in a POW camp. That's on right. Fraudulene. Yeah. Is that right? I think so. And he's there for a long time. So he's survived all of this to retell this story. Of, I mean, he's just endlessly tortured mm -hmm. by the Japanese, Japanese during World War II. Mm -hmm. And this after, like you said, surviving a plane crash, surviving 
being on a raft and possible exposure in the middle of the Pacific Ocean, probably should have died in the middle of the Pacific Ocean, uh, gets into the, uh, the uh, slave labor camp and is nearly starved to death, and uh, the commandant of the whole place is just this real sadist, mm-hmm. just this absolute sadist. Mm-hmm. And then I think he lives to be like close to 100 years old. Mm-hmm. on top of all this and runs a marathon when he's like 80 or 85 years old. I believe it. I don't remember that, but I believe it. The guy is just, wow, another Another overcoming life. adversity. What a life. Mm-hmm. What a, I feel very lazy now discussing <laughs> this guy. I don't think you should, but I <laughs> There's understand. an old comedy book called Men Who Do Next to Nothing and Would Like to Do Even Less. It was inspiration for lazy people oh god so that they could stay lazy i think i'm gonna have to go home and read that after talking about unbroken just kidding just kidding (laughs) it was very funny uh let's do kind of a catch-all just a uh just a few extra questions so imagine a life without anything to read emily ever again i'd rather not (laughs) i it's just like is this like the worst level of awful you can think of uh, that might be extreme, but that, I mean, you know, that's how you learn. That's how you gain wisdom and knowledge by intaking, you know, without having to experience life yourself, like, yes, experience life, but you don't have to experience everything you can read about it. And we learn so much about every aspect of our life that it, there's so much to be gained. So if we lost if we lost any type of reading and we were only relying on, I guess, video, I mean, heck, a lot of people have already <laughs> succumbed to that, I guess. Yes, for sure. So that's I, I just want to survive on the comment sections on YouTube videos because I think that's where the brilliant writers of our time are. I mean, there are some people that go at it, for sure. They have nothing better to do. It's pretty ridiculous. Okay, so that being said, um, I'm sure there is a world classic out there that you really wish you would read. That, gosh, I just, I should read this world classic, but every time maybe you've tried to read it, you just can't get into it. It's, it's better than sleeping pills. What is this world classic that you really should read? For me, it's the other 18 Shakespeare plays that I didn't read. I think I've read something like 18 of them. Hamlet, Macbeth, Othello, King Lear, Midsummer Night's Dream, etc. So it's the other half that mm. I, I really should read. How about for you? What's the one that you should read? Gosh, I don't know. I didn't prepare this one. Nothing immediately comes to mind? No. Okay. I know there's a few in there because I can think of them and people just go, what? But I can't like what they you are. haven't read that, and, right? And I can't believe Paul. you couldn't get going in that. And they're appalled. Okay, yeah, well, okay, I maybe can't. we'll come back to that. Maybe not. <laughs> Do you reread books? I reread books. I, I don't understand why people don't reread books. I mean, <laughs> unless they're I don't know married and have six young children. I, I don't know why people don't reread books. I do not have a hard and fast rule for this, but my general rule is I do not. Okay. Because I have so many lists everywhere of books I want to be reading okay. that I don't want to waste time reading a book I've already read. Mm. There are some I've gone back and read. I've reread Harry Potter several times. Okay. Just, and probably because it's easy and sometimes I need a lighthearted like, pick-me-up maybe. So yes, there are some. Okay. Especially if I don't remember things. But for the most part, no, there's just so many other books that I'm never going to get to that I'm trying 
Okay. So I'd much rather move on. If you had an infinite amount of time, if you were going to live to be 3,000 years old, would you reread more books? Possibly. Okay. All right. I wouldn't discount uh, it. Okay. Uh, let's see. Do you finish every book that you start? Mostly. You do? I get a little OCD about that. You do? I'm impressed. I, yeah, I very rarely put it down. I kind of have to force myself through some. Uh-huh. There have not been very many that I just was... Okay. Although I can think of one recently, a couple years ago, that I was just done, done with. And it is so popular. Okay. Ugh. Have okay. you... Have you <laughs> I hate to... I usually only like being positive, but I was not a fan of this book. Well, okay, we'll leave it out. Okay, okay. We'll just... We'll stick, <laughs> we'll stick with the positive here. Okay, uh, good. Because that author's mom would probably have her heart broken if she... I found... mean, I don't know. Look, some, some, book, <laughs> some books are not so good. I It's frustrating when things become very popular and on the surface, like, the general ideas seem good. Yeah. But you dig a little deeper and they're actually kind of destructive and oh, not sure. good advice. Yeah. But yet have gained such popularity, but then people don't want to talk about it and really break it apart. It's very frustrating. Fair Especially enough. when there's things that are actually negative advice to people. Right. Some, sometimes, it. maybe it's an advice book that's giving people, I don't know, how to lose friends and infuriate people. That, that's actually a book title. It was a playoff of uh, how to win friends and influence people. And I don't know how many copies it sold, but I mean, obviously, he's hopping onto Dale Carnegie's platform and just, you know, uh, riding that platform as far as he possibly can. So, um, but okay. Uh, hypothetical question. You and your family are getting on a houseboat, and you're going to travel the world for a year, and all expenses are paid. But part of the bargain is you only have room for 10 books for yourself. Now, you can bring in a lot more books for your kids, you know, so like kids could all have books. We're not going to deprive them. Your husband could have books. Uh, what are the 10 books? Now, it's only for a year here. So yeah, that's not, bad. it's not terrible. And you do get to travel the world on a beautiful houseboat. Yeah, that sounds amazing. I mean, I would take, I would probably take the Bible and the catechism. Okay. That'll take some time to get say, through those. Right. Those will take years yeah. and years. So I would try to spend some time on those. Oh, gosh. Okay, that's, that's January and February. <laughs> yeah, right. That's the entire year right there. That would take well over the year. Oh, gosh. I think I would take, what am I dying to read right now? I'd probably take a couple of those Saxon Tale books. Okay. I would probably, I'd make the kids take the Harry Potter books. We could read those aloud and maybe some classics. Um, what would I take? I think I'd take, I have a few more C.S. Lewis that I have not read yet okay. on the shelf that are on my list. The fiction or the nonfiction? I think they're fiction. Okay, like Out of the Silent Planet, Paralandra, mm -hmm. That Hideous Strength, those those fiction books. Okay. Yep. Gotcha. I I'd grab those. Um, there's a couple of saint books that I've been meaning to get to. Some mm -hmm. saints that I've recently learned more about that I would like to learn more. Okay. One of them being Saint Hildegard of Bingen. 
Okay. She's a doctor of the church. She was like the only doctor that I didn't know anything about. There are women, women doctor of the church. Because gotcha. there's only four. Okay. And I was like, I just seem to hear about these other ones a lot more, but the more I learn about her. So I'd love to dig into her a little bit more. And St. Jane de Chantel. She's a new to me okay. saint. So I would dig into them. Uh, let's see. Any classics, like, I don't know, a Jane Austen or a Charlotte Bronte or Moby Dick, since you're out in the water, so that you can get <laughs> eaten by a gigantic white whale. Since I haven't read that before, it'd be a good idea. Yeah. No, I, I could take Pride and Prejudice. I've been meaning to reread that one. Uh, okay, okay. Or Emma. Yeah, some of the Jane Austens. Yeah. Pride and Prejudice, Emma. Okay, all right. Maybe not Mansfield Park. No, just kidding. Yeah. I don't know. No, thanks. Uh, okay. Uh, is there anything that we should have talked about that we didn't talk about? I don't think so. I'm sure there is. Okay. Okay. I yeah. I mean, books are forever. They're absolutely forever. So, okay. So let's fast forward to age 100. My favorite question. And you're sitting on the porch with Brett. And uh, you're surrounded by your kids and your grandchildren and great-grandchildren. And one of the grandchildren says, Grandma, what was the best about being a bibliophile? Oh, goodness. Um, I think it would be the excitement of being pulled into someone else's story. Mm. Because... If you really feel like you're in that story or you can at least understand the motivations, like we said before, we're learning about new places, new ideas, new, new everything that we might not experience in life. And so it gives you that, that knowledge and that picture of other things. It's beautiful. Absolutely beautiful. The inside landscape of the other person and the outer landscape of the actual world. Absolutely. Thank you, Emily. This has been great. Thanks for having me. <laughs> you bet. Thank you for listening to Seemingly Ordinary. The biggest favor you could do for me would be for you to share this podcast far and wide. Next episode on a Tuesday.